there, everyone, and welcome to Farm Bureau on the Hill. I'm Amy Beckham. On this episode, Shelby Vinoy of our Public Policy Division sits down with the Chairman of the House Agriculture and Natural Resources Committee, Chris Todd. So we're here with Chairman Chris Todd, who is the chair of the House Agriculture and Natural Resources Committee. And uh, Chairman, thanks for joining us. And I guess to get us started, why don't you tell all of our listeners and readers a little bit about yourself? Well, thank you. I I am uh, originally from Paris, Tennessee. That's where I grew up. Came to Union University in Jackson for my biology degree and ended up staying there. Met my wife there. And uh, so we have stayed in Jackson ever since. So I'm more of a Jacksonian than a Parisian now. <laughs> but um, growing up, I, I had a family farm not very far from us, probably 20 minutes from where I lived that my grandparents ran. And uh, some of my most fond memories were helping my granddaddy on that farm, uh, except for the hoeing of cuckaburrows. That's not a really fond memory, but uh, a necessity nonetheless. So he raised hogs and cows and beans and corn and uh, I do remember one bale of cotton sitting in his uh, shed that he had baled. The last bale he'd ever ha- had uh, was before I came along, but uh, he had he- held on to it to, I guess, till prices came up. But never did uh, uh, get around cotton until I was in Jackson, and a lot of cotton grown around, uh, and actually built my house on a little small cotton farm. Uh, so I've uh, been around uh, agriculture for uh, most of my life, and then my biology degree led me into the environmental world, so we have run an erosion control and grassing contracting business for over 27 years now and provide that kind of service for contractors and developers primarily. So still doing that, and then five years ago, uh, the Lord led me into this venture of being a state representative at the same time of running a business, which I never really saw coming. But uh, it has been a a very interesting, challenging, intriguing adventure, and uh, I certainly could not have done it without my wife. She uh, has been by my side the entire time, one of the hardest campaigners uh, that I've ever known of. Uh, Her name's Melissa, and she uh, uh, is able now with our kids being grown, and we have one in school still, but not locally, so she's able to travel with me more on some of the legislative trips that uh, we have available for educational purposes, and so we're just enjoying life and uh, and, and making the best of this uh, legislative adventure. That's awesome, and for the folks who maybe you haven't been to the Cordell Hall building, uh, one of my favorite things about the chairman's office is your wall of belt buckles behind us. My first visit uh, I thought, wow, this must be a rodeo guy. Came and started admiring them, and they're, it's Hydro Olympics, right? Hydrodeo um, from your environmental background. So, with all of that in mind, was there a particular a moment, or what was it that inspired you that you said, hey, I want to serve the people of Madison County and run for the State House? What was that moment for you? I think it's probably more of accumulation of moments. Uh, for 10 or 12 years, I was a member of the NFIB, and uh, our small business was represented by them uh, as being an association member. And then I became involved fairly early on in their leadership council and their environmental council. So I got to probably be a little more involved than just the average person with legislative things, mostly dealing with small businesses. That was really such a, a neat introduction to me into this world and and had a few very specific instances where I got to see how 
just an individual or a small group of individuals had a very significant influence on legislation. So it told me that, you know, that's still a thing. You know, people still have influence uh, from, from the standpoint of just grassroots influencing what legislation has passed. And so that meant a lot to me and, and opened my eyes more to the state government. And, of course, I'm, just like everybody else, pretty disgruntled with D.C. And, and mostly from the standpoint of the Constitution. You know, we have ceded so much power to D.C. and so much of our money to D.C. and our borrowing power, unfortunately, uh, over many decades now that the states don't have the type standing that they should have. The Constitution clearly defines what the federal government shall do and says all other powers are you know, left with the states. And so I'm a big proponent of federalism and getting us back to that point where states have the ultimate authority. I mean, again, states created the federal government. States created the cities and counties. So state government is the center of all government in our country, uh, and it should be. That's where you know people are uh, more accountable. That's where the the average everyday folks can have the most influence, I believe. So one, seeing that whole picture made me more interested in being a part of it. And that, but I never dreamed I would at this stage of life. Running a business is more than a full time job. And so uh, again, when the Lord calls you, you know you you know, okay, is, am I really here in this ride? And so with a lot of prayer and and uh, supplication, we we got into that. Uh, decided that that he was calling us into this for some reason, and uh, we won uh, our first election and then uh, two subsequent elections. But uh, it's it's truly uh, a tremendous honor to be in this position because I you know I look at it from the big picture. Very few people in this state are in this type of position, and uh, I don't take that lightly. I'm very humble. Um, I don't feel like I deserve to be in this spot at all. And I also recognize everything I do reflects on my constituents and Tennessee as a whole. Uh, the places we travel now, talking to other legislators, we get a lot of questions. We get a lot of comments from them. How are you guys doing this in Tennessee? You are the place to be. Everybody wants to be in Tennessee. They want to be like you. And, again, I think it's just going back to our foundational principles that uh, our state is, is so keen on of just basic human morality, uh, Christian foundings, and doing the right thing uh, when it comes to abiding by the Constitution and certainly with that, that biblical worldview in mind. And uh, I, I, again, count it as a very high honor to be in this position and want to continue to uh, represent my constituents and the folks of Tennessee for whatever period of time the Lord kind of keeps it on my plate. Yeah, and I think we're super honored and blessed to have a representative like yourself. I mean, you mentioned that we only have 132 who can serve at one particular time, and it's rare that you find of that 132 someone that um, you can just put your whole your whole trust behind. And so we're extremely honored to have you here. And it sounds like you've had quite a lot of life that you've, you know, had accomplishments and, and you've gotten to travel. And now that you and, and the wife are in a new stage of life where you feel like you can go do those things together. But um, I would imagine you've had some help along the way. So what about role models in your, specifically in your legislative career? Who is someone that you call upon or, or maybe they're not here anymore? Talk a little bit about the role model because you've only been here two terms, right? 
But a lot's happened in those two terms. We've seen quite a bit. Um, so talk a little bit about who keeps you grounded while you're up here. You know, I think first and foremost, I would say family keeps me grounded. I'll never forget the first piece of mail I got after being elected. It was addressed to the Honorable Chris Todd. Well, my daughter got the mail that day. And she, when she saw that, oh, my gosh, the eye rolls and everything was so funny. So my family keeps me humble because nothing changed with me from the day before I got a letter calling me the honorable to the day after. Uh, still the same guy. And that's really such, to me, such a, a neat part of, of this establishment is we're just regular everyday folks that are serving that for some period of time are willing to step into this role and, and perform those duties and, and responsibilities for the people and for our communities, um, and then go home, go back home, uh, and, and continue our, our life as it was. Um, role models in, in this world uh, are numerous, and I think of, I think of uh, a lot of different faces come to mind when I think of role models, and, and it, it kind of depends on what the situation is. Uh, again, I've served with, in five years, I've served with a number of folks that really stand out to me for certain things, uh, integrity, character, honesty, trustworthiness, um, wisdom, in, in just how all of these things fit together. Uh, so I, I can't name just one, and I, I'm almost hesitant to start naming anyone, but uh, you know, I, one that comes to mind is Bill Dunn. Uh, Bill is now with the Department of Education, but was here for 20-something years serving in this role and was just such a wealth of knowledge. And, and his grounding was never uh, – he never wavered in his grounding. It was He was always pulling from those foundational constitutional principles in every decision he made – Every comment he made, it seemed like he was pulling from that. Uh, so I had a lot of respect for Bill, still do, and I, I still will will call him or see him and ask him a question off the record uh, just for his uh, personal opinion. And several folks like Bill I have, have asked to don't wait for me to ask you something. If you see something I need to know, if I'm stepping in it and, and you need to get me out of it, feel free. I'm not wearing my feelings on my sleeves. So I, I beg you to interject when you see me going uh, awry. So, uh, you know, and another one is uh, is Andy Holt. Uh, I've got a lot of respect for Andy and, and his perspective on things. Um, my goodness, uh, you know, our speaker, Cameron Sexton, uh, and, and again, someone that has a lot of wisdom in this realm of, of just the, the big picture and how things fit together. Um, Leader Lambert, uh, he and I have become close friends, and uh, I, I do rely on him for uh, his insight into things and advice when I'm facing a decision that I'm struggling with. Um, and and there, again, there's so many others uh, that, that I've served with here that are, are not coming immediately to mind, but if you name a specific bill or situation, I can probably <laughs> immediately do that. And then there are folks that represent organizations like Farm Bureau when uh, or NFIB, when something in those realms come up, I know the people to call that will have their hands around it. They have the association, the membership behind them that has determined what those answers should be. And uh, that's very valuable to me to know that we're 
those groups are representing a, a lot of people, thousands of people that are just real everyday folks that are hardworking individuals in Tennessee that are here for the right reasons and have the experience and the background and the knowledge that they're willing to share through their associations so that I can make those good decisions. Speaking of decision-making, I'm going to put you in the hot seat for a second and ask a little bit tougher of a question. Um, so obviously as chairman, you have a committee that sits with you that comes from um, some of the most urban parts of the state, you know, Representative Hardaway from downtown Memphis to to yourself in Jackson up and up to Vice Chairman Darby in Weekly County. It's a wide array of folks who come from different backgrounds, different interests, and it's your job to herd those cats. And I, I say herding cats in the most respectful way. There, there are cats. You know, we we enjoy herding them. But as the chairman of a committee with competing interests, how do you navigate conflict, decision making? You know, what what do you, what are some tips that you have? to handle the herding of the cats on your committee? I see the role as chairman as somewhat of a referee to make sure that every member is treated fairly, that everyone has their say, has a voice in the conversation, and uh, even the public. You know, we want to make sure if the public is there and they want to have input on a bill uh, or, or just give a presentation, we want to be mindful of that and we want to be respectful and uh, accommodating to make sure they have that opportunity as much as possible. So, you know, having things go at a, at a pace where we can get our business done, but we also can make sure we hear from those voices because that's such a critical part of our process. Um, sometimes we're faced with difficult decisions, you know, uh, complicated decisions, things that uh, maybe don't get the full vetting in a committee and you you know you learn of other angles and other aspects behind the scenes or afterwards that you didn't know in a subcommittee and and uh, so helping share that information and, and make sure the committee understands those factors and uh, that the right decision can be made on that particular bill so it's uh, there's a heavy responsibility there to make sure the right thing gets done you know as a newly elected representative the very first bill i got passed was to repeal a bad law that i had discovered i had some one in my uh, community came to me and said, this just got on the books a year ago, and it is going to close our business in less than a year. Well, that gets your attention. And so as a small business owner, that really gets your attention. So I looked into it. I saw how it, it was passed. It was uh, uh, someone very influential got it passed, and it was kind of a, uh, a big business uh, favor type bill that nobody really noticed. And I thought, you know, that's not good for the majority of businesses in our state so you know i ran it up the flagpole and fortunately got it repealed so I, i'm always looking for that uh, not, not only do we have any bad laws on the books that need to be changed or repealed but also to make sure we don't have anything bad get passed even resolutions mean stuff something to me and i, I want to make sure that we don't pass something that is going to make a statement about the state that's inaccurate or inappropriate and, and we've had those. We've had some resolutions presented that, uh, from an ag standpoint, were very uh, negative and, and detrimental. And so we have to make sure that those don't get put forth 
in such a way that the public thinks that's really what we think about the state of Tennessee because it's it's really not. We're very proud of the state and want to make sure that only the the best gets passed and the worst gets repealed or killed. So that's uh, not always an easy thing to do when you have members with competing interests or um, someone that thinks they've got a really, really good idea and you've got to find a way to, to explain to them why it's really not. It, it, here's how it's going to be harmful. And most of the time, folks can get their hands around that if you do a well enough job of uh, explaining it and uh, and kind of sell that point to them where they see the results of it down the road. And then they usually can can tell that, okay, this this needs some more work and let's hold it for a year and, and, and look at it some more. And I think, too, that's where our interests overlap. You know, you're the watchdog of your committee, checking your calendars, making sure there's nothing that... Um, maybe sends the wrong message to Tennesseans or just does right by Tennessee's people. And we do a lot of that at Farm Bureau. You know, we, we track bills and we're, we're in your office, seems like once a week, just making sure that everybody's on the same page. And so with that, from your perspective and from your folks back home in Madison County, I know um, your local county Farm Bureau has had events with you and for you, but from where you sit, what role would you say that Farm Bureau plays in the legislative process? There's so much that gets presented in a given year uh, in the legislature for consideration that it's it's almost unmanageable for one person or a small group of people to have their hands around it and keep an eye on it. So having folks like Farm Bureau watching what bills are being filed, what's being put on notice, what's being calendared and and run through committee on a week-to-week basis is so vital. I mean, it is extremely critical to the process because even as chairman, there can be some things that come through that you don't notice that there's something hidden in it or there's a, a potential negative in it. So it takes all eyes on these things to make sure, again, we don't trip up and, and pass something that's going to be detrimental. So having uh, multiple eyes on it and, and groups with specific interest watching for those things because they're the experts. You know, I'm, I'm only an expert in very few things, and I recognize that when I came to this job. I, I know that on a daily basis now. And I have to rely on folks in fields that are truly experts in those fields where I'm not. And then I'll, I'll certainly, you know, understand and focus on the things when, when uh, my expertise comes into play. But for the majority of the time, it's somebody else's expertise. So having Farm Bureau that, uh, that looks out for property rights, looks out for uh, the, the ag community and any bills that could potentially uh, do harm or at least not support our ag community is vital. And again, I come kind of come from that world with NFIB because that's what uh, I was doing as a citizen advocate within NFIB and, and, and had that role. And so I, I understand it even better than most probably and know how vital that is to this system working properly. So Again, things can get very complicated. You can have a very simple-sounding bill that has a tremendous amount of ripple effects. And if you don't recognize those quickly, uh, early in the process, that train can get rolling and be hard to slow down before something bad happens. It's always those simple bills. (laughs) Or the last day of session. It'll get you every single time. Um, So let's talk a little bit about home for you. You know, Madison County's in a an area that I think a lot of eyes are on it with growth that's happening at Blue Oval and just really West Tennessee as a whole. Um, 
and we've got we still we're we're headed in the right direction, but we still have some counties in Tennessee that are a part of that economically distressed area, um, and a lot of those that fall under that category are in rural parts of our state where our, our members are and where a lot of farming communities lie. What are some things that the state is doing to address the economic situation in those distressed counties? Like I, we're, we're headed in the right direction, but what's something that you'd like to brag about that y'all are doing? Well, I think first and foremost, the, the legislature has been very intentional for some time now in creating a, a business environment that we would attract folks, not only businesses, but people to support those businesses. And, and we're doing that. I mean, Tennessee is the number one drop-off for U-Haul in the United States. So that, that tells you right there that folks are moving here. Uh, they're, they're coming in droves right now. And uh, it's, it's funny, I talk to realtors about that sometimes and how many of them tell me, that you know, well, we we interview these folks. You know, we we want to find out what they're thinking. Okay, you're moving to Tennessee. What's your reasoning? And uh, most of them, fortunately, are moving here for the right reasons. Where they're leaving some ridiculously liberal state that is taking their rights away from them, and they're wanting to move back to freedom in Tennessee. And so, protecting freedoms and liberties to me is our number one priority. That is, uh, you know, by our oath of office, that is goal number one. So, uh, you know that. There's a lot of things underneath that that come under that, but um, that to me is the first and foremost. So being a beacon for liberty and freedom in this country is uh, is crucial, I believe. It's what we're supposed to be, get, kind of getting back to what our founders intended for us to be. But then also the way of life. I think Tennessee has such a diversity across the state of individuals, of uh, environments, uh, I mean, I've grown up in West Tennessee all my life. I got to spend a little time in East Tennessee working uh, one summer and fell in love with it. And, you know, there's just not a place in this state that I wouldn't want to live and retire in, for, you know, for example. Uh, so it's just it's all good. But it, every every place has its own flavor. Uh, unfortunately, in West Tennessee, we've been losing people for a number of decades now, and our population has been, been diminishing. So having uh, Blue Oval and then several other industries around that that are already committed to coming to West Tennessee has started that to turn around now, and we're going to see a surge of folks. Um, I, I, I don't know that every community that is small and not growing uh, they're staying rural. I don't know that those communities necessarily want to grow. You know, I, I, I wouldn't assume that every rural community wants to be a city. Uh, I would assume the opposite, quite frankly. That's why most of those people stay there and they live there and they move there uh, is to stay rural and, and uh, small. So uh, and I had that conversation with a, a small-town mayor not long ago. He was talking about how we need this and we need this for our community to grow. And I said, do you ever think about your community may not want to grow? That's why they live here. They like the small-town atmosphere. Um, and, and I don't know that he really thought about that, but it, it's certainly something to consider. Um, when I came in five years ago, one of the focuses I did have, along with several of my colleagues that came in with me, was encouraging the administration, especially ECD, to focus on our rural communities. When you're, when you're citing uh, locations for factories or, or whatever kind of businesses that are looking for a good place to, to land – Keep our small communities in mind. That where there's a good fit, let's match them up. 
And we're seeing that uh, all over the state. We're seeing the big ones, but we're also seeing the the smaller ones, uh, I guess relatively small. You know, just recently had the announcement of a boat manufacturer that's expanding and uh, in a significant way in a you know, fairly rural area. So that's, that's exciting to see because it'll be life-changing for the folks that live there. And there will be probably a few more people move into those communities uh, to live and raise their families. So, uh, and, and that would more than likely will be a, um, a real boon to that area uh, to, to just have uh, a little better economic conditions, still be rural, still, you know, still keep their small town atmosphere, but, uh, but just allow folks to have a little better means of living and uh, contributing. So I, I think little things like that are exciting. And we continue to encourage ECD to do those things, to, to really look at our distressed counties and, and uh, uh, those that are borderline distressed all across the state to focus new businesses and, and new arrivals in those places where they fit. And there are many that, that fit very nicely. I think that was that's such a great point. I mean, we're headed... I've seen the how we've transitioned over the last five years. I mean, even since, since your start up here in Nashville, that... We've come such a long way, so I'm optimistic to see kind of where we go in the next five years. But um, throughout your five years, what if you had to have one thing, what is the one thing that you are most proud of as a a state representative that you've done since being here? Many times I have answered that, and and I I guess I probably still will answer that with the, the first bill that I got passed that repealed a bad law. Uh, literally a month after getting elected, I had a lady call me and said, um, I need you to look at something. We've got a, a law on the books that was passed about a year ago, goes into effect here in about a month, and in less than a year, it will close our business. And I was stunned. I thought, hopefully they're mistaken. But I went and met with them, and um, literally two employees, the owner and and one employee. And, and matter of fact, the, the lady that called me, the employee, uh, is a neighbor of mine. I'd just not met her. They hadn't lived there that long, and I had not met them. And so we looked at it, and we looked at kind of how it got passed, and uh, no one asked questions or anything. Uh, we went back and watched video, and which is one of the things I love most about uh, our legislature is how transparent things are. We've got things where you can watch live stream. You can go back and watch archive videos from I don't even know how far back. Uh, to kind of recreate what was what was going on at that time, what happened with a particular uh, bill or set of bills. So we watched those videos and how this got passed and did a little research and realized that it was a protectionist bill. There was one company moving into the state that uh, was in a number of states, and one of the first things they tried to do was get this bill passed. And every state they move into, that would create a kind of an exclusivity for them in that field so that no one else practically could comply with the law and stay in business. And so there were 13 or 14 of these small businesses across the state that were going to be affected by this, probably have to shut their doors. And so once I discovered that um, and the, the member that had gotten it passed was no longer here, uh, that helped, I, I think. Um, but I, you know, ran it up the flagpole, you know, presented it, told the story about how this is affecting some small businesses across the state. Um, and I don't, I don't even think we had any of them come and testify, quite frankly, but I've just presented what their stories were. 
and and it went you know from one committee to the next and passed and uh, got uh, somebody to run it in the Senate. Same thing. Um, they had you know we had those folks contact that senator and say, here's my story. Here's how this is going to affect us. And there was no good reason to leave this on the books at all. It just wasn't. And so, uh, you know, I was very proud to, to find that, to have a constituent bring that to me and be able to take action on it and, and get that wrong righted. That meant a lot. I always think it's interesting to ask that question because those are the things that, you know, there wasn't a breaking news headline about that piece of legislation. But for that constituent back home, you may as well solve world hunger for them. I mean, that kept them in a, a viable, thriving business. So um, congratulations. But for those people back home, what is the best way for a constituent to contact you? What is, you know, we call upon our members to reach out to members of a committee or maybe their own lawmaker throughout the session. What's the best way for someone to get in touch with you? Well, it's definitely not through Facebook <laughs> or Facebook Messenger. I hate getting messages through that. I, d- I do some people just don't find the, the other ways of, of doing it, so they'll they'll send messages through that. But it's difficult to deal with that in that format. But uh, phone calls or emails are perfect. Um, we get all of those. We there, There's not one that we get answered by a service or anything like that. It's me and my assistant, Rob, and, uh, and you know, both of us usually are seeing them sometimes at the same time uh, or hear the phone calls. I, I don't really know what goes on in, in D.C., but on a state level, we hear you when you send an email or you make a phone call. We definitely hear you. And I people stop me all the time at home, you know, at the grocery store or at a restaurant or whatever and, and talk. Uh, tell me about something and I'll jot down a note uh, and then we'll, we'll jump on it and get them an answer or get back with them about a solution, whatever it might be. So uh, we're very accessible. Phone numbers and emails are on the, the website, easily found, and uh, and we do respond. And they do mean something. It's not like they go into some junk bin or something. We do get them. We respond. And if we ever don't, it may be because of volume that we've just gotten so many. Um, now, we get a lot from out of state. And we, when we're on some hot-button issues uh, that have a national interest, we have folks in other states that feel for some reason that they should try to weigh in on what things are going on in Tennessee, and we swiftly delete those or, or erase those. So we, we do not deal with those. But if you're in Tennessee, we're going we're gonna to hear you, and we're gonna, we want to know your thoughts on a bill. Be respectful. We've had plenty that aren't respectful, but uh, – you know, everybody you know has feelings, and uh, we we all uh, can communicate as adults, and things get but done much better and much quickly, more quickly when we act as adults and and treat each other with with respect. So uh, we're very accessible and proud of that, and want to remain accessible. And for the folks who are listening to the podcast, we'll include your contact information on the website version. So if you go to tnfarmbureau.org you can just search Chris Todd and you'll see that. One thing that when we're normally back in the office recording the podcast, we just do any wrap-up comments or any parting words of wisdom for the folks who may be listening? Well, one of the things that, that I've been more cognizant of, uh, I guess, in the last few years are factors outside of Tennessee that, that can affect us. And one of the most astonishing that that I'm seeing more and more of and just had conversations this week with some experts about this is ESG policies and we have investment firms uh, and and many others that are pushing the ESG scoring of businesses and I think ultimately their their goal was to have individuals scored with ESG scores 
And these policies, uh, and ESG stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance. So it, it is rating how a company um, is environmentally friendly or respectful it, and, and how they're uh, socially engaged uh, and also how they're governed, uh, how diverse their governance is. For example, their board of directors or their ownership. What kind of diversity does that uh, include? And uh, they have scoring for each one of those categories. And if you're scored fairly low, then it can be difficult for you ultimately to get loans and, and to, to have your business thrive, uh, to get contracts. That's where, where it's headed anyway. But I think because of efforts we and other states have made in the last couple of years, and I've, I've had a constituent bring this to me two years ago, and I didn't know where this came from. I mean, it's just like, what are you – what are you talking about? What is ESG? And they sent me an article. And then from then, it's just been a snowball of information. And uh, and, and it ultimately, uh, on a high level, what it really is, is very liberal ideas that cannot win at the ballot box. They cannot get these uh, people elected that have these ideas. So let's do an end around the government. Let's, let's force this on businesses and people by bypassing legislatures that, that are representative of the people, and let's do it another way. And so it is basically forcing this type of mentality, this thought process of, again, the, the environmental part of it is net zero by 2050. That means zero carbon emissions by 2050. Now, if you don't think that's going to affect agriculture, let me explain the ways you're talking about how you uh, you know, even put a crop in, harvest a crop. Physically, how do you do that if you don't have machines that can run on fossil fuels, diesel? Um, it, it all the way to fertilizers. You might not be able to utilize the commercial fertilizers that we have now uh, if this plays out like they they hope it will. So, its effect on agriculture is is staggering to me, and how it can affect agriculture. Um, I, I think this this ultimate control that this group of people want to have, again, with the in interest, I think their interest is, they say, is protecting the environment. I believe ultimately it's it's about controlling people and habits and uh, and just what we do on a day to day basis, uh, which to me is fairly evil, uh, and and we cannot stand for it. So I'm doing all I can right now to educate myself to find out how they're doing it what ways we have as a state legislature to push back on that. We've already implemented some, and we will probably be looking at more. Uh, it's already had an effect just in a year, literally one year. Folks that are big money managers that were bragging a year ago about ESG and the effects they're having on this environmental uh, uh, ultimate goal, now they don't even talk about it in their in their public statements. It is not even mentioned, so they're realizing that it's it's getting attention, not good attention, and that that we are going to find ways to push back on it financially, um, and and also legally. I think there's uh, with these money managers, they have a fiduciary responsibility to get the best return for their investors not a specific type of return or a return based on certain ESG scoring. It is strictly make more money. And so we're looking at potentially laws uh, maybe to be tweaked to make sure those folks have a financial and a criminal liability attached to that, that if you thwart that, that, that uh, 
responsibility. If you decide to go a different way for your client and your client hasn't directed you there, then you're responsible for that ultimately. And so uh, there are things that we can do more, and we're going to continue to push on that. And I know that's kind of a um, almost a black box type thing you try to describe and folks kind of glass over and wonder what in the world are you talking about now surely that's not happening i'm telling you it's happening and it is so evil and dangerous that we have to attack it and and we will continue to attack that uh, both from an education standpoint to learn what they're doing uh their, their tactics and then how to push back on that very strongly so that's one thing uh, that i'm continuing to try to educate myself on and i will continue to uh, strive to do that and, and then find the ways to get some of these uh, counter uh, measures in, in place so that we can thwart their efforts as much as we can. Otherwise, it's just making sure that our policies in this state align with the values of Tennesseans. Um, we have a number of um, folks in the in the administrative world that make rules and and uh, and do all kinds of things uh, to uh, oversee certain areas of our state. Uh, one of those is environmental, and I'm you know that's my business is in the environmental world. I used to be a regulator many many years ago, and so. I see both sides of that coin. I see how we need to strive to protect our natural resources, um, without a doubt. But I also know that, that those natural resources are here for the benefit of people, plain and simple. People are the ultimate focus in our state, and they should be, and always should be. So how do we balance that? Uh, that protection of resources, but also utilization of those resources for the most people. And we see a number of ways where the administration, uh, folks inside the administration, can go different directions than the average Tennessean would want to go. And I also want to make sure that we don't head in those wrong directions, that we stay aligned with what our citizens want us to do and uh, uh, how how they want to uh, how they want us to protect their structure of life and uh, their way of life in this state. So uh, we're, we're constantly seeing, um, I, I don't say attacks, but we're seeing gradual drip drips of, uh, of, of infringements on people's rights in that realm. And I want to make sure that we look out for that and then find ways of, of uh, offsetting those or even negating those if we can from a policy standpoint. I, I don't think we need... Uh, bureaucrats making policy in the state. That's what we're elected to do, and then they're to carry that policy out. So I'm always looking for those opportunities, and I'm working on some right now, as a matter of fact. Uh, both in my professional life, I've got clients that are dealing with specific problems, but they have a higher policy level attachment to them that I'm also working on with uh, the department to make sure that we get things back to where they, they're supposed to be um, in this state from a regulatory standpoint. So that's a that's a kind of a big picture type view, but it, it really can make a difference uh, where the rubber meets the road, even down to the point of possibly even restricting what some of our municipalities do. You know, I had a situation in the last few weeks to where my local city council was looking at passing an ordinance that was going to be very detrimental to farmers. As a matter of fact, they've already fined one farmer for spreading organic natural fertilizer on his field in the city limits. He's going to court this month, matter of fact, in the next few days. And um, I feel like it'll be thrown out because of the state laws we've already put in place just while I've been here that make sure that agriculture is not hindered that uh, we can continue to produce the food and fiber and fuel that we need to live. So 
I was able to share with our city council what that state law is and how their new proposed ordinance was going to be in violation of that law and put them in a situation of possibly a class action lawsuit. And so fortunately, it got tabled very quickly once folks realized what it was about and uh, understood the bigger picture. So uh, always glad to play that role and, and just help inform people and make sure they know what the rules are and kind of what box you have to play in, but uh, we'll always continue to be looking out for the ag community uh, to protect our resources, but to make sure that we can produce those things that everybody needs to live and and, uh, enjoy life. Always looking out for us. Uh, Well, Chairman Todd, thank you for taking time out of your fall. Um, For those of you who don't know, our legislature is a part-time legislature, so this time of year they're normally back in the district resting and meeting with constituents and recuperating from what is just (laughs) what is rest well it's true i guess more recovery from the trauma of session um but thank you for taking the time and for folks who want to read more um we'll have the full interview on tnfarmbureau.org but for now i will call it a wrap